Good morning, brothers and sisters. I pray that this Lord's Day finds you resting in God's sovereign grace. As a church family, we are continuing to wait upon the Lord, praying for His mercy to bring this trial to an end. But as we wait, we are also needing to remember God's Word to us from passages like 2 Peter 3, where the Lord reminds us that He is not slow to fulfill His promises. And that's good news. We are waiting, yes, but we can trust that the Lord is working in the meantime. And so as we wait, let's continue to be hopeful. Let's continue to be steadfast in our confidence in our sovereign God. Our sermon text today is Luke chapter 8. So I'll invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn there with me. We're going to consider verses 26 to 39. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Please follow along with me. As we read, this is what the Holy Spirit says to the church. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let, him, let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together. Father, we do look to you during this time of trial in the life of our country and in the life of our church We look to You as our refuge and our strength. We remember, God, the promise of Psalm 46 that You are a very present help in times of trouble. We remember, Father, the good news of the Gospel which, among many things, reminds us that God has not remained distant from us in our need, but has drawn near. And so we look to You today, God. We we run to You as Your Word so often calls us to do. And we We find our hope and our confidence in You today. We know, Father, that uh, You are at work in our lives, and we know that You are doing things in the world that reveal Your good 
and just and righteous purposes. Father, increase our hope this morning. Father, as we look at this text from Luke chapter 8, help us to see afresh the power of the living God and help us to be encouraged that nothing can stand against this. Father, please give me grace to speak things that are true and faithful to the Scriptures. And please help us, Father, to be strengthened in our faith. And we ask this, God, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Those well-known words were written in 1887 by Sir John Dalberg Acton, an English historian and politician who is now better known simply as Lord Acton. And the history of humanity just since 1887 has proved Lord Acton's words to be both perceptive and true. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The reason for this lies in the human heart, doesn't it? By nature, humanity is itself corrupted. Like Augustine once said, sin has caused us to be curved in on ourselves so that we twist nearly everything to serve our own desires. Whatever we encounter out in the world, we try to bend it to serve our wishes. And so, Lord Acton's words prove true. Power does tend to corrupt. And the greater the power, the greater the corruption. But friends, there is one person in history to whom Lord Acton's words do not apply. There is one man whose possession of power did not drive him to corruption. And our passage today in Luke chapter 8 is a stirring picture of this absolutely powerful yet perfectly righteous man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see the one person in history who was not corrupted by power. Here we see the one man who has absolute power and used it absolutely for good. This is an incredibly vivid and gripping passage, isn't it? It's also disturbing at points. But for all the vivid detail, the action follows a pretty simple plot line. This is a passage about power. On the one hand, there is a power that is both corrupted and corrupting. Demonic spirits afflict a man and drive him to his breaking point. But on the other hand, there is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the plot line. An army of demons versus the Lord Jesus. It's a passage about power. But when these two powers clash, friends, it quickly becomes clear whose power is absolute. What is the main point of this text? It's that the Lord Jesus has no rivals, not even an army of demonic spirits. Jesus possesses power that is absolute in and total. In biblical terms, friends, what we see here from Jesus Christ is divine sovereignty. That is, we witness from Jesus the kind of power that cannot be stopped, cannot be thwarted, and cannot be defeated. It's the kind of power that only God possesses. You see, this is a passage about power. But the amazing good news of this text is that no amount of darkness can corrupt or stop the absolute power of Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, this theme of power helps us organize our time uh, together. I'd like us to note three pictures of power 
in Luke 8, with each picture helping us see more clearly the glory of Jesus Christ. But before we get to those pictures, I do want to address something here at the start, just head on. Like I said, this is a vivid passage, and some of what happens is rather alarming. And because of this, it's natural to have a lot of questions of things that we are curious about. But it's important to remember, friends, that Luke is not interested in answering every possible question. Remember, Luke's goal is to shine the spotlight on Jesus Christ. And that means some of our curious questions don't get answered. For example, why does Jesus send the demons into the pigs? Luke doesn't tell us. What is the abyss in verse 31? And why doesn't Jesus send the demons there? Luke doesn't answer. How can an army of demons indwell a single person? Great question, but not the point of the text. Luke's point is to magnify Jesus, not to give us a discourse on the nature of demonic oppression. Now, to be clear, demonic activity is real. Evil spirits are operative in the world, and their power is significant. Just like with last week's text, this passage is no myth. This is no fable. This is flesh and blood history which is why we ought to listen. But even as we listen, let's keep our focus where Luke's is, on the person and the power of Jesus Christ. So, with that, let's note together these three pictures of power in Luke 8, and let's note how they lead us on to worship Christ. The first picture confronts us with the same power that confronted Jesus. In verses 26 to 30, we see the destructive power of spiritual darkness. The destructive power of spiritual darkness. Luke tells us in verse 26 that Jesus and his disciples head to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This takes them into Gentile territory, which will be significant later in the text. But as soon as Jesus arrives on that eastern shore, he is met by this man, verse 27 who is in terrible distress. The man is afflicted by a multitude of demonic spirits. Now, typically Luke doesn't give us much detail on this kind of demonic activity. In his Gospel, Luke tends to be brief in these moments. But this passage is unique, both in terms of the man's situation and Luke's presentation. Here, Luke gives us a very detailed, very vivid description Why is that? Why so much detail? Well, it's so we will have a clear picture of what spiritual darkness does to a person. So notice from Luke's description how this man is horribly disturbed and totally dominated by these unclean spirits. To begin with, the man is horribly disturbed. He is not in his right mind. Notice verse 27, how the man wears no clothes and he lives in a cemetery. That's not normal. And that's part of the point, friends. Luke includes these details not simply to say, look at this guy, he's weird. No, it's much more heartbreaking than that. These demonic spirits, in a sense, rob the man of his humanity. Naked among the tombs, this man lives like a beast. You see, it's dehumanizing. The man is disturbed. 
But the picture gets worse, doesn't it? In verse 28, the man approaches Jesus and he cries out with a loud voice. The language here means that quite literally the man is screaming uh, like a lunatic. He's yelling like a madman. Again, he's disturbed. But notice also what the man screams. He yells out that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. Now that's a true statement, isn't it? Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. The disciples, back in verse 25, were just asking, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey Him? Who is this? The disciples asked. Well, here's your answer. And it comes from the most unlikely source. Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. And yet, even this declaration of the truth reveals how deeply disturbed the man is. The demonic spirits know the truth, but at the same time, they don't submit to the truth. And neither do they allow the man to submit to the truth. And that speaks to how this man is totally dominated by these unclean spirits. The man is in bondage at this point. Luke describes it in verse 29. The townspeople try to lock the man up, both for his benefit as well as for the safety of others. But the demonic spirits break the shackles and drive the man away into the desert. Again, the desert is not a place of human flourishing. It's not a place that you want to live. But the demonic spirits don't care. They rule over this man. And that spiritual domination is pictured most painfully in verse 30. Notice what happens verse 30. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. Friends, that is a tragic way to answer Jesus' question. Ligon Duncan has pointed out that these demonic spirits were so powerful, the man couldn't even remember his own name. He's forgotten who he is. And that's the tragedy of this man's life. He is defined by darkness. He is, in a real sense, totally dominated. So when you put these pieces together, friends, what you get is a picture that we would rather not see, but it's a picture that Luke wants us to see. And it's just the destructive power that spiritual darkness unleashes in a person's life. Everything that God calls good, the evil one opposes. And everything that would cause a person to flourish, the evil one and his minions seek to subvert. That's really what we should take away at this point in the passage. Listen, I know there's a lot that we could discuss here about demonic activity, and there may be some value in thinking through those things. But remember, even Luke sees this man's situation as unique. Even Luke acknowledges this is extraordinary. So we should be cautious about trying to draw too many specific or direct takeaways from this encounter. Instead, what we should do here is look for the general principle that this extraordinary situation illustrates. And that general principle, friends, is this. Spiritual darkness in all its forms is not to be trifled with. Spiritual darkness in every situation will seek to utterly destroy everything that God calls good. Remember, the New Testament speaks of what we might call the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that unholy trinity is at war 
with God's redemptive purposes. The world refers to that system of unbelief and practice that is opposed to the authority of God. The devil is our adversary, the one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And the flesh is our own indwelling sin that makes war inside of us, fighting against faith and godliness in our own lives. That unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil, captures the power of spiritual darkness that opposes God and His people. And we should be reminded here that spiritual darkness is real. That unholy trinity is real and its power can be devastating. Now, I want to be careful that you not misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not suggesting that we as Christians ought to go around looking for demonic activity in every corner of the world or in every event of our lives. We are responsible for our actions, even the ones that fall in line with the temptations of the world and our flesh. It is never a Christian response to say the devil made me do it. That's never a Christian response. So we cannot simply blame everything on the activity of unclean spirits, whether it be in our lives or in the world. That's not my point. Rather, friends, my point is simply but clearly to remind us that spiritual darkness is real and its effects are devastating. I would argue that's why Luke's presentation is so detailed. It's as if God pulls back the curtain for us in Luke 8 on the spiritual realm. He pulls back the curtain and He allows us to see what spiritual darkness does and where it goes and what it's like. Listen, friends, sin wrecks human beings. Sin destroys human lives. It dehumanizes us. And spiritual darkness is never satisfied. It's always hungry. And what it produces with its insatiable appetite is destruction, death, ruin, decay. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we ought to take seriously the Bible's call for us to live as children of light. Like Paul says in Ephesians 5, we ought to be absolutely committed to killing sin in our own lives. We ought to be absolutely committed to exposing sin and darkness in the world. And we ought to be absolutely committed to prayerfully proclaiming the Gospel of Jesus Christ who is the light of the world. All of those things, killing sin, exposing darkness, proclaiming the Gospel, all of those things take seriously the destructive power of spiritual darkness. And as children of light, which is what we are by grace, as children of light, part of our calling is to be an outpost of Gospel light in the midst of this dark and dying world. But at the same time, at the same time, there is a question that arises here that we also ought to take seriously. It is painfully clear in this passage that no human power can free this man. There was nothing he or others could do to defeat this spiritual darkness. So where does that leave the man? Where does that leave us as people who continue to live in the midst of the world, the flesh, and the devil? Where does that leave us? The answer, friends, comes in the second picture. 
verses 31 to 35, where we see the redemptive power of Jesus' word. The redemptive power of Jesus' word. Right away, the demonic spirits recognize that Jesus has authority over them. Notice verse 31, where they beg Jesus not to command them into the abyss. As we said earlier, we're not entirely sure what the abyss is, but it clearly strikes fear into the demonic spirits. What's more, they beg Jesus, Luke says. You only beg a person who has authority over you. Again, the spirits know who is in charge. They know who has the superior power. Jesus will determine what happens to them. And so, this fascinating exchange happens. Verse 32, the demons beg Jesus to let them enter a large herd of pigs on the hillside. Verse 33, Jesus agrees. And once more, we witness the destructive power of darkness. The demonic spirits drive the pigs off the cliff and drown them in the Sea of Galilee. An uproar ensues, verse 34, as the herdsmen flee to tell everyone what has happened. It's honestly a strange moment, isn't it? There's a lot of questions. But let's not lose sight of what's clear. This legion of demons would have eventually done the same thing to the man. They would have eventually driven him off the cliff of sanity and the man's life would have been utterly lost. But amazingly, the man has been saved from that terrible fate. Look at verse 35. And notice the difference now in Luke's description. Verse 35, Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Friends, what we see here is the after effect of redemption. Jesus, with only His words, has freed this man from bondage. In fact, we now learn why Luke included so many details earlier in the passage. It was to prepare us to appreciate the incredible change that Jesus produced in this man's life. The before and after details are powerful. The the redemptive change is stunning. The man goes from naked to clothed, from raving to in his right mind, from wandering among the tombs to sitting at Jesus' feet, to fearful of Jesus to desiring Jesus' presence and His instruction. You see, it's a remarkable, remarkable change. This man's life has been redeemed from bondage, and it has happened entirely through the power of Jesus' Word. And that, brothers and sisters, should clue us in to the takeaway for our lives today. As we said before, we ought to be careful about drawing specific applications from this extraordinary encounter, but there is a general principle here that should greatly encourage us. What we see in this text is a stunning reminder that nothing can stand against the power of Jesus Christ. Nothing can stand against the power of Christ. When Jesus acts in power to release sinners from bondage, Nothing, not even an army of demons, can stand in His way. The Lord Jesus has absolute authority, and He wields that authority for the good of lost sinners in the need of redemption. Friends, nothing can stand against the power of Christ to redeem. 
brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, do we believe this? Do we believe this? Are our hearts encouraged today that Jesus' powerful Word cannot be stopped? Listen, there's a sense in which we should be reminded here in Luke 8 of our own testimony. While the details of our lives before Christ are not the same as this man's, our desperation was no less serious. The darkness that gripped our souls was no less powerful and no less destructive. And yet in His mercy, the Lord Jesus has broken the shackles of darkness that imprisoned our souls in sin. According to His Father's will and through the Spirit's work, the Lord Jesus has redeemed sinners like us. We too have tasted His redemptive power. And that means, brothers and sisters, that Jesus' power will continue and finish His redemptive work in our hearts until we reach that great final day when we see Him face to face. It might surprise you this morning, but this passage should encourage all of us to honestly face up to the sin that remains in our own lives. Jesus' redemptive power cannot be stopped. We can face our struggle against sin with hope and with confidence. Why? Because we're powerful enough to overcome such things? Hardly. Our confidence comes from the One who faced down a legion of unclean spirits and brought freedom. Friends, Jesus does not fail to save those who need His power and His grace. And so, we can face our fight against the flesh and the world and the devil. We can face that fight with hope. We can confess our sin. We can bring it into the light. We can engage with the world with the truth of Jesus Christ's Gospel. We can address the fallenness of our own lives still. And we can do so knowing that Christ Jesus has power enough to help us grow. He has power enough to help us live and thrive in the light of God's presence. We can face it with hope, friends. Embrace that confidence today, brothers and sisters. Embrace it by faith. Sin thrives on darkness. So let the power of Jesus Christ encourage you today, even now, to live in the light. It's the redemptive power of Jesus' Word. And so, as we think about the change that Jesus so powerfully produces in the lives of broken people, we're led to the third picture in Luke's presentation. This final picture rounds out the passage and it takes us one level deeper in our response. From verses 36 to 39, we see the transformative power of serving Jesus. The transformative power of serving Jesus. As we just saw in verse 35, the townspeople are afraid when they find the man with Jesus. Just like the disciples back in the boat when the storm was calmed, the the people from the town cannot fathom what they are witnessing. Who is this man? They hear the report in verse 36, so they know very clearly that all that has happened, Jesus did it. So they know that Jesus did this, but notice their response, verse 37. 
Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Now, why are these people afraid? Luke pictures their fear almost like a human enemy. Did you hear that? Verse 37, fear seized them like an adversary. Why are they afraid? Well, perhaps they have no category for this kind of power. I think that's possible. Or maybe they were afraid that Jesus was going to cause more damage to their town. I think that's also possible. It was a rather large herd of pigs, apparently. Whatever the case, their fear crowds out the truth. Do you see that? Their fear even keeps them from seeing the truth and embracing the truth. All they can see is fear. And so they ask Jesus to leave. But the man, Luke tells us, has a different response. Look at verse 38. The now healed man wants to go with Jesus. And who would blame him? (laughs) Jesus has restored his life and set him free. Where else can the man go? Only Jesus has been able to deliver him from darkness. But then Jesus does something surprising. Notice the end of verse 38. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So Jesus has a different purpose for this man. Jesus calls him to service. Jesus commissions him, you might say, to spread the good news of what God has done. This man is to be a witness among his neighbors. Now, within the storyline of the Bible, this is a rather remarkable moment. Remember, Jesus is in Gentile territory at this point. He is beyond the borders of Israel. So as this man sets out to witness to God's work, what is he like? Well, he's like a forerunner of what is to come in the rest of the New Testament. Here we see the heart of God for all the people of the earth to hear the good news of His redemptive power. Here we see the beginning of how the truth of Christ will spread all across the globe, even among Gentiles. You see, in that sense, friends, verse 38 is like the book of Acts in miniature. It's like a little preview of the Acts of the Apostles. It's a snapshot of God's grand purpose to gather for Himself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And here in Luke 8, the man does a faithful job. He's a faithful witness. Notice the end of verse 39. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Friends, try to appreciate what a powerful witness this man would have been. Listen, everybody knew who this guy was. Everybody in the town knew about this guy. I'm sure that people would go out to the tombs to gawk at the crazy naked guy who couldn't be chained down. Everybody knew who he was. But now, here's the same man, healed and in his right mind, walking through the streets of their town, proclaiming the power of this man Jesus. That would be a powerful testimony, wouldn't it? An incredible testimony. And that's where I'd like us to focus for some takeaways ourselves. Friends, ask yourself, how does Jesus make His glory known in the world? How does He make it known? Through the testimony of transformed sinners 
who use their lives to proclaim all that Jesus has done for them. That's how Jesus makes His glory known. Through the witness of those whom He delivers. And so, there are two encouragements here for us, brothers and sisters. There's two encouragements here for us. One is never underestimate the work that God can do through the faithful testimony of a redeemed life. Never underestimate the work that God can do through the faithful testimony of a redeemed life. Your testimony might not be as dramatic as this man's in Luke 8. Whose is? Nobody's is. But still, every redeemed sinner is a testimony to the power of Jesus Christ. Every believer is called to make Christ known through their own witness. And I do want to stress this point, friends, because we often talk about testimonies. Notice that the man in Luke 8 testifies to what Jesus has done for him. Do you see that? Yes, the man's testimony is remarkable, but the focus is still on Jesus. Do you see? The highlight of the man's testimony is not how bad he was, but how powerful Jesus is. That's the key to a faithful testimony. It's not about the witness. It's about the one to whom the witness proclaims. And so it should be with us today. As Jesus' witnesses, our lives are the arena where the power of Christ is manifested. And in that, our witness is first and foremost to Christ and not to ourselves. We testify to what Christ has done. That's faithful Christian witness. And may we never underestimate what God will do in and through that kind of witness. The second encouragement is this. Never assume that a situation is too far gone for God to work. Never assume that a situation is too far gone for God to work. This man in Luke 8 was in the grip of deep darkness. And yet with a word, Jesus delivered him. This man was enslaved arguably as deeply as any person recorded in the Bible. And with a word, Jesus frees him. And so it remains today. We proclaim Christ and we do so no matter how deep the darkness. We proclaim Christ and we do so no matter how unlikely it seems to us that the person would be saved. The power doesn't come from us, friends. I hope we don't overlook that very simple observation in this passage. The power belongs to Christ alone. And therefore, it's not our responsibility to determine whether or not the situation is too bad for Jesus to work. Whatever the situation, no matter the darkness, no matter how unlikely it seems to us, we proclaim Christ. Our calling is to be like this changed man and to tell the world what Jesus has done. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that God would make us a faithful, outward-looking, courageous church. And when I say let's pray, I mean literally let's pray about that together consistently. That God would make us a faithful, outward-looking church. Surely, 
of all the things that God is doing in these days, surely it is bringing people to a recognition of how fragile the world is and how easily the hopes of many people are shattered and shaken in an instant. So like Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, we may very well be witnessing a wide door for ministry opening before our very eyes. Let's take it, brothers and sisters. Let's testify to Jesus, trusting that His power is able to break even the deepest spiritual darkness. Never assume that a situation is too far gone for the power of God. We proclaim Christ and we do so no matter the darkness. As we close, I want to point out to you one more encouraging feature of this man's testimony. You'll notice in verse 38 that Jesus tells the man to testify to what God has done for him. But then in verse 39, what does the man do? He testifies to what Jesus has done for him. That's key, friends. As we work through this section in Luke's Gospel, that's key. Where is the power of God working in the world? He's working in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. And that means Jesus alone has divine power to deliver. The man in Luke 8 saw this on some level. But we, brothers and sisters, know this with the crystal clarity of the Gospel. Jesus alone is able to save. For Jesus alone has the power to break the bonds of sin and darkness. Power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's true, except for one man. Jesus Christ. He is absolutely powerful. And He uses His power absolutely for good. So may we be His faithful witnesses. And may we, by God's grace, have the privilege of witnessing many people come to know Christ's saving power by faith. May God make it so in our church. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask now, humbly but boldly in Jesus' name, that You would please equip us, fill us, compel us, and use us to be powerful witnesses to the redeeming blood and power of Jesus Christ. Father, would You take our very humble, very small and meager church in the world's eyes and would You bring glory to Christ through the witness of our lives? Would You open our mouths to speak that there is a man who can redeem sinners from even the deepest darkness and that He laid down His life and rose again to secure salvation for His people. Father, please come and move among us, we pray. Please come and work in our church, we ask. Please bring glory to the name of Your Son. He deserves all praise, for He alone is the Son of the Most High God. Make us faithful witnesses to Him, God, we ask. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.